Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. To lose one independent ethics advisor might be seen as unfortunate, but to lose two is, well, it's certainly not good news for Boris Johnson. Lord Guite, in the job for just 14 months, quit on Wednesday night. Was that inevitable? What does it mean for the Prime Minister? What should happen now? We'll give our views. And if colliding with standards weren't enough for one week, Boris Johnson has been facing some battles with the law too. From proposed legislation on the Northern Ireland Protocol to his Home Secretary's plan to fly migrants to Rwanda, it has been a week where government policy has rested on legal rulings. We're going to take a look at that. And then we'll look ahead to next week and the looming train strike on everyone's mind despite the glorious weather. Why is it happening? What can the government do about it? All that to come. Two IFG colleagues are in the virtual studio with me, senior researcher and Brexit expert Jess Sargent. Hi, Jess. Hi, Bronwyn. And Alex Thomas, Programme Director for All Our Civil Service Work, is here too. Hi, Alex. Hi, Bronwyn. And I'm delighted that we're joined as well by Jonathan Jones, the former head of the Government Legal Department. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, everyone. Very good to have you all with us. Well, let's start with Lord Guite's resignation. Alex, why is he gone? Well, it's a very good question. And we're we're recording now uh, about five minutes after his uh, exchange of letters with the Prime Minister has been uh, released, which sheds a little bit more light on it. So I'll I'll mention that in a moment. But um, I suppose there are a few reasons. The first is accumulated questions around the Prime Minister's um, behaviour. Lord Guite has expressed his concern about the Prime Minister failing to assure him that he had abided by the ministerial code uh, following Sue Gray's report into Partygate. Um, The other reason... uh, uh, it looks like it was around um, uh, the government's fairly timid changes to that uh, uh, the, the role of the advisor in investigating uh, uh, breaches of the ministerial code, as we've been arguing over the last few weeks. While they've introduced some some very modest reforms, it doesn't really change anything at all. And then there was a parliamentary select committee appearance this week where um, Lord Guite was uh, forced to defend some of his decisions and his judgments uh, on the Prime Minister, which was pretty excruciating for uh, him and those watching. But then this letter that we've just got um, suggests there was another factor. I mean, it's worth remarking in the letter, there's some really strong... Let's let's just go into that letter. Um, I want to say on your middle point um, about the Ministerial Code being revised recently, one of the things he really objected to was not being given more powers to initiate investigations, wasn't it? Something that we've been hammering on about. Yes. So he, he was given the power to initiate, which is new, but the Prime Minister could still veto it. So yeah. it doesn't really change anything. Really it's still in the hands anything. of the Prime Minister. Okay. Thanks for clarifying that. Right. Let's go to this letter, which is very forthright. And yet, to me, at least, slightly obscure in the key point about what he's objecting to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's, I mean, there's some really strong language. He talks about being put in an impossible and odious position. I mean, for someone who's been very cautious and um, has been very careful in his use of language over the last 14 months, it's really strong. But there's this, it, it does seem like something has happened in the last few days where he has been put in what he considers to be an impossible position. The Prime Minister's response to Lord Guy talks about asking for his advice on a trade remedies authority issue, which people are assuming is about steel tariffs. Uh, Now, our best kind of reading between the lines of this is that it seems that the Prime Minister of the government asked Lord Guite to opine on the uh, compliance with the ministerial code of imposing or continuing steel tariffs that it seems were 
unlawful. Now, this is all this is all very weird and very convoluted because, as Jonathan will know far better than I do, it's not Lord Guy you would normally look to to decide on the lawfulness of a policy. And if you've decided you've that a policy is not law, you look to the Attorney General and, and, yeah. and, and, and other lawyers. If you ask Lord Guy to say, we know that this policy is unlawful, but can you uh, say that it is in compliance with the ministerial code? Of course, Lord Guy is going to say, well, no, because it's unlawful. So it's contradictory. So uh, perhaps Lord Guy would say he was being put, you know, questioned deliberately or otherwise in a completely impossible position by the prime minister and the government. Yeah. The government might say, well, hang on, we're trying to get your advice on this uh, this trade remedies uh, issue, which is um, you know, which is really difficult. We were we we were we were using you in the proper way. So more on this, I suspect, will emerge. Absolutely. Well, Jonathan, what do you make of this? I mean, months and months of, of Partygate, which is where the country's attention is, and you could understand Lord Guy saying, look, I've, I've had enough, uh, if you like. And instead of which, he, he is saying, in a way, I've had enough. But then his letter seems to turn on this thing that many, many people will not have heard of, and a particular row this week. What do you make of it? Well, uh, I can certainly understand why he says he's had enough. I mean, he's been put in the impossible position of nominally being an independent advisor without truly being able to act independently, um, as Alex and others have said. Um, So I'm I'm not surprised he's gone. Um, Like others, I don't really know the detail of the particular matter that he refers to in this letter. But it does sound as if the government uh, was embarking on a course that it knew to be wrong. Whether that means unlawful, uh, I don't know. But it sounds as though the government had decided to do something that it knew to be in breach of the code, and was somehow asking Lord Guite to bless that. And, and one can see why he found that to be a completely impossible position to be in. And he says, if the government's decided to do something um, deliberately uh, that uh, is a breach of the code, whether because it's unlawful or for some other reason, then he's really saying the government should own that. Uh, and you can't expect uh, the independent advisor to somehow bless it. And in any event, he's saying that for that prime minister to set out on a course which he knows to break his own court, his own code, is, Lord Guy says, an affront. And again, you can see why, because the prime minister has made a great deal of the fact that he owns the code and that he's the person that should ultimately be expected to uphold it and administer it. And some of us have got some reservations about that. But nonetheless, that's the prime minister's position. Well, how is that then consistent with the Prime Minister saying, well, I know something's a breach of the code, but I want to do it anyway, and please, Lord Guyte, will you say that's okay? Uh, so if that's the right reading of it, I think we'll understand why Lord Guyte's decided he's had enough. Yeah. And he presses the, the point, doesn't he, uh, in this letter, which we've all been studying just ahead of this uh, this podcast, saying that, um, that, that uh, Boris Johnson had, had gone some way to address um, Lord Guide's, um, you know, worries about his behaviour and his obligations under the ministerial code, um, including explaining that by paying a fixed term penalty, prime minister uh, fixed term penalty, the prime minister felt he hadn't breached the ministerial code, but then says you didn't go far enough to address. Uh, criticism in Sue Gray's report about your adherence to the principles of public life or in in more detail about your obligations under the ministerial code. Is this really the substance of it? This is a a detailed way of saying I've had enough. 
I think it is an accumulation of uh, factors. I mean, in his letter, it's interesting. He talks about um, you know taking all of the you know Partygate stuff as one kind of package. He he does say, I believe that it was possible to continue credibly as independent advisor, albeit by a very small margin. So I think what he's doing there is defending his position not to re- resign up to this point. He's saying I was uncomfortable. Uh, it was a very marginal decision, um, but. Uh, you know, there was just about, you know, the thinnest of assurances that allowed me to to continue. And the other thing it's probably just worth remarking on is um, he does pick out on um, uh, this reference previously um, that the Prime Minister has used as an excuse about miscommunication between our offices. He says, with the implication that I was somehow, that I, Christopher Guite, was somehow responsible for you, the Prime Minister, not being fully aware of my concerns. So uh, again, some of the sort of the handling around this has clearly, uh, clearly uh, annoyed him. We, and we can't know whether the trade remedies question on its own would have been enough for him to for him to go but i mean as we have seen we saw with his predecessor alex allen when the prime minister isn't you know that this is such a kind of delicate post uh in its you know fragile post is perhaps a better word um that when the prime minister doesn't um uh sort of follow the norms that you would expect whether that was agreeing with alex allen the previous advisor that um pretty patel had breached the ministerial code Mm. or putting Christopher Guy in this impossible position, um, the only recourse is to resign. So the whole thing then sort of collapses. And who, mm. who on earth will do this job next? Mm. Jonathan, you resigned from your government roles. How hard is this decision? Well, um, all resignations are different. Um, and mine was based on you know, a very difficult uh, but different context. Uh, and um, my role was different. I was a civil servant. So I had a contractual relationship with the government and that affected the basis on which I resigned and I served that notice and so on. Um, so um, they're, they're always different, but nobody wants to resign from a job um, that you're doing and enjoying and hope that you're adding some value from. I'm sure Lord Guyton, and I think we've seen that in what Alex has just said, he, he sort of hung on, however uncomfortably, uh, um, in, in, in the, with the aim of not resigning. So it's, I would say, pretty much always, as it was for me, a last resort. When you've tried to deal with the issues of principle that um, you're uncomfortable with, and ultimately you've failed or you've, you've reached the stage of the last straw. Uh, and I guess that in the, in the different context from the kind of situation I faced, I guess that's where Lord Guide has got to as well. Mm. And... Um, Jess, we're about to come on to Brexit in more detail, but does this keep Partygate in the news? I think it certainly brings it back up the news agenda and beyond Partygate here, if there are new issues potentially um, being talked about. Um, I don't know whether this will be enough to change any Tory MPs' minds or um, renew talk of a leadership, but what we've got coming up next week on Thursday are these by-elections in Wakefield, Antiviton and Honton. Um, so Labour's looking to retake the former and the Lib Dems have their eye on the latter. So this combined with potential by-election results, and we'll have to see which way they go, but if the Conservatives do lose those seats, we could see a kind of reprisal of some of the debates around Tory leadership. So the Prime Minister's very much not out the woods yet. Mm. Is it a reprieve for Keir Starmer or not? We've still got the Durham police waiting to um, say whatever they're going to say. Yes, absolutely. I think we'll have to see on the timing of that and how that might relate um, to the by-election, whether it's before or after might have a bearing on how those results go. Um, We also saw Keir Starmer uh, being investigated this week for some uh, late um, expenses 
um, or uh, declarations of gifts. Um, so that will also uh, pose some difficulties for for him. But certainly, the focus at the moment does seem to be on on the government this today. It definitely does. And Jonathan, just the last thing on this, Alex threw into this: who would do the job at this point? Do you think um, is it is it going to be impossible to fill, and does it matter if it's not filled? Well, it's really difficult to imagine who would do it, frankly. I think it may be almost impossible to fill it without completely recasting the role again in the more radical ways that IFG and others have suggested. Um, The risk is that anybody that comes into it now will be seen as a kind of patsy, uh, either that or they have to stand up at the PM and they only last five minutes too. So I think it's really difficult to see who would want to do this and who would have credibility in doing it unless the role were now very significantly changed. If you don't have an independent advisor, then I'm afraid um, uh, the, the ministerial code really just becomes a piece of paper and arguably not worth that paper. Thank you for that. Okay, let's move on to what were the big stories of the week until Christopher Guy quit. Jess, the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill has been published. You dialed into this podcast last week to give us a preview. Was it what you expected? Yes, I think broadly it was. We'd heard quite a lot in advance about what this bill might contain, although there was still some working out of the details. And I think even now we've seen the bill, still some more working out of the details to be done. Um, What we've seen in the bill is that it disapplies huge parts of the protocol in EU law. Now, obviously, the UK can't unilaterally change the terms of the withdrawal agreement itself, but it does remove the obligation for UK authorities to comply with certain parts of the protocol. And then it gives ministers these very broad powers to implement different arrangements for trade going between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Um, So it removes the requirement for checks and controls on goods going between Great Britain and Northern Ireland and staying there. Um, It removes the requirement for goods in Northern Ireland to comply with EU law. So it provides for this dual regulatory regime in which goods can comply with either UK or EU law. Um, It also takes Northern Ireland out of the EU regime for subsidy control. There's some measures on VAT and excise duty to ensure that policies can apply UK wide. And it also ends the role of the European Court of Justice in overseeing the application of the protocol. So this is broadly what we're expecting. But I think what has surprised some people is just how broad some of these powers the bills gives to ministers are. It gives UK ministers the power to disapply other parts of the protocol later down the line. And there's very little detail as exactly how the UK government's intending to use these powers. So there is also this question about it's asking parliamentarians to give give the government a lot of latitude to decide how to proceed with this, as well as these principles about disapplying parts of the international um, international law um, and also uh, what reaction that might provoke with the EU. Well, just on that point, what do you think the EU is now going to, going to do? So we've seen a fairly muted response from the EU so far. We've seen the Commission reiterate that they are not going to renegotiate the protocols. So it looks like there's 
little hope for uh, a negotiated solution in the short term, at least. Um, the European Commission has resumed what's known as infringement proceedings against the UK government. So that's this process that the EU can take to take the, U- take the UK government to the European Court of Justice if it's not applying EU law correctly. Um, it paused some of those to allow some discussions with the UK about trying to find a solution on some of these issues um, uh, last year, and it's now resumed those. But it's not clear that the UK will actually engage with those. So whether that will actually make a difference to the UK government's calculations is is a question. I think the EU are going to want to sit tight to some extent and see how this progresses, because obviously at this point, the bill's only been introduced. It may face some domestic opposition. There may be a change in political circumstances. But I think there will become a point where non-action will become a bit of a reputational risk from the EU. And so I think this possibility of some kind of trade law is is still on the table, even if it's not an immediate prospect. Very nicely put, because, uh, of course, you know, the government still has to do quite a bit. It has to try and get support for this very controversial bill. And it's asking the DUP to come back into the Northern Ireland government, um, which is never certain how they are going to respond. Jonathan, you wrote a terrific guest blog for us about how governments get legal advice. What do you make of it in this case? Well, Jess has given a very good um, summary of the bill, and it is a pretty extraordinary uh, piece of legislation. makes very, very major changes to the protocol, um, far more than the Internal Market Bill did in 2020. This is very much not limited and specific. This is wide-ranging and wholesale. Uh, and Jess has also rightly commented on the hugely wide powers that are conferred on ministers by this bill to make changes, to make uncertain changes in the future. So um, it's, a, it's a, a major assault on the protocol. The government justifies it as a matter of international law by saying that uh, it's um, justified by the international law concept of necessity and I, and I have to say, most other commentators find this completely unpersuasive, um, the idea that there is now a situation of grave and urgent peril facing the UK as a result of the protocol, uh, which justifies turning off great chunks of the, of the protocol, uh, is um, really utterly implausible. As far as I can see, the EU uh, itself simply... Um, doesn't give that argument house room at all. It's just proceeding on the basis that the bill will be a breach of the withdrawal agreement and a breach of international law, and I think that is right. So the government's explanation for that in the statement that it published uh, is is really just a piece of, of unconvincing window dressing, in my view. I was reaching for that bit. Um, its justification is that um, this is necessary to uphold the, um, the, the Good Friday Agreement, essentially. Well, it, it talks, yes, it, mentions, it, it, it talks about upholding the Good Friday Agreement. It also talks about um, the particular uh, social and economic and political position in uh, Northern Ireland. But of course, all of this would have been known about uh, when the withdrawal agreement and the protocol were agreed. Um, and in any event, the idea that those circumstances justify turning off quite so much of the protocol, including, for example, as Jess says, the role of the European Court. The idea that the, that the European Court is causing political economic turmoil in Northern Ireland is frankly laughable. So um, 
Anyway, you gathered I don't regard this as a very persuasive justification. Yep. <laughs> I, I, I've gathered that. Um, Jess, why didn't they just trigger Article 16, which wouldn't have been breaking the law? So the terms of Article 16 are quite narrowly drawn. They have to, um, measures taken under it have to uh, clearly respond to a specific problem that has been identified. They have to be limited in both their scope and duration. So they wouldn't have allowed this very kind of whole scale reform of the protocol that the UK government wants. So that's one reason why the UK government might not have reached for Article 16. Um, I think there is also a sense that the UK government is wanting to be seen to do something on the protocol to make progress here. And that is one reason why um, governments sometimes use legislation to demonstrate to both the DUP and the ERG that they are taking action without actually doing it at this point yet. So um, I think that that is the reason that, that they pressed ahead with legislation. They still argue that their preferred solution is a negotiated agreement with the EU. Um, and so there is a sense that perhaps um, they were hoping that while this bill was going through Parliament, that would give space for more negotiations. They might be able to convince the EU to change its mandate and get an agreement that way. But at the moment, that's not looking particularly likely. OK. Um, Alex, as a former civil servant, what's it like to be in government when legislation as controversial as this? Well, anyway, controversial lands <laughs> on your desk. Yeah, it's it's uncomfortable. Um, and I mean, my mind goes back and Jonathan will remember this uh, very well to the policy that I was heavily involved in on uh, prisoner voting rights, whether prisoners should be eligible to vote in elections and hugely controversial at the time. Uh, it seems it seems minor compared to some of this, but um, but very controversial at the time The David Cameron, when he was prime minister at Prime Minister's Question Time, said it, the, the thought of enfranchising prisoners made him feel physically ill. Um, uh, and uh, and the government was dead set against doing it. It, but there were judgments from the European Court of Human Rights that, that required um, required action. Uh, the the striking thing there was two things really. Firstly, that it was really important to us as civil servants. You know, we we were very happy to sort of flex and bend and take as creative an interpretation of the legal advice as possible. But it was very important that the government's action was compliant with the law. Uh, and to be fair to ministers, I mean, there was testing times, lots of difficult conversations, but they recognised that. Um, uh, the, so, which leads to the second point, which is that uh, there were some, you know, not, not entirely persuasive arguments put forward perhaps around, around some of the government's action on this, but there was, there was enough of a justification that the civil servants working on that policy uh, could be, you know, could, could, persuade themselves that it was compliant. And I should say that included uh, introducing legislation. So the act of introducing legislation is a government act. So, I mean, in my view, the government has breached its international uh, law uh, commitments on this. So it's, it's, it's difficult and it requires lots of sort of manoeuvring. But the, this, 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 is, this is, seems to me to be a very different situation where the government is much more brazenly saying, you know, we've, we've concocted a, an unpersuasive uh, uh, legal argument, but we're just now plowing ahead, uh, you know, regardless, which I, I do think puts individual civil servants and the civil service collectively in a very difficult position. You take us into the second big legal controversy of the week, which is the um, Immigrants to Rwanda um, plan, which didn't go according to plan. Well, or did it? Um, uh, so, oh, what an uh, interesting question. Yes. Um, so this is the the, the uh, plans announced by the Home Office and uh, Home Secretary a couple of months ago now to um, uh, process and then uh, um, uh, not even deport, actually, but sort of um, uh, send uh, 
migrants to the UK, to uh, Rwanda to be uh, resettled there. There was a plane waiting on the tarmac to um, take you know, an ever-diminishing number of um, uh, these migrants uh, to uh, Rwanda, uh, and then a series of uh, legal interventions in the domestic courts initially, um, uh, sort of uh, person by person, uh, and then uh, uh, what I understand is a broader judgment that came from the European Court of Human Rights that, that meant that the plane didn't take off because there wouldn't have been any uh, body uh, on it if it had. So the interesting question is: you know, was this a good faith attempt by the government to uh, uh, to implement this scheme, or did they know that there was always going to be uh, a legal challenge and that the courts would intervene to stop it? I mean, much of the debate. Well, they might have known is- that. I mean, they, they, and they won. We should say the the uh, the. UK uh, battles all the way up to the, the Supreme Court. There is quite a lot of suggestion that they that the European decision did not take them by surprise, but that doesn't mean that they wanted it. No, and I, I suppose it was a win-win in that sense. Um, uh, but I, sh- I, I think they, they they won the domestic decisions, but only in that the uh, only on the assurances that they'd be able to kind of rectify, they'd be able to return um, uh, asylum seekers uh, back to the UK if it was subsequently found to be illegal. Because I should stress, we don't we don't know whether the policy is uh, legal or not. This was just about whether it could be uh, whether it could be enacted in advance of of, of a court uh, reaching a, a decision on that. So uh, yes, I mean you're, you're right. I suspect there was a kind of if we uh, if we lose in the courts, we can um, uh, make the case that we're being prevented from doing something we want to do. Um, if if we win, then uh, that's the the start of the the policy that we want to implement. Yes, I, uh, we wouldn't want to apply, um, which your, one of your phrases almost almost, almost <laughs> did, that they they didn't want. Um, this. It was it yes, was their plan. Keep, to do this. keep me on the straight and narrow. Quite, yeah. quite right, probably. Yeah. <laughs> Jonathan, uh, what advice would you give the government? Well, uh, the government always expected to be challenged. Uh, And that's, of course, not at all unusual for any controversial policy. The government will be expecting and will be ready for a challenge. In this case, the government, as far as I can see, had more or less always decided to blame the lawyers in advance uh, for the challenge succeeding. Um, I mean, so far, leaving aside the, the kind of utterly controversial nature of the policy, the legal process has proceeded pretty much as one would expect. Uh, there was an urgent request, as Alex has said, for interim measures to pause removals uh, until the legality of the whole scheme could be determined. Uh, And both the High Court and the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court declined to give uh, uh, interim measures. So to that extent, the government has won on that interim question in the domestic courts. And then again, completely unsurprisingly, there's an application to the European Court of Human Rights for the equivalent of an interim measure, what's called a Rule 39 indication. And uh, the controversial bit now is that the European Court of Human Rights has granted such um, uh, an interim indication. Um, And so the, the immediate advice to the government is actually to do what it's doing, as far as I can see, which is to pause the flights, uh, however reluctantly, uh, whether that was part of the master plan or not, who knows, but that's the position now, and to wait for the full hearing, which is only a few weeks off, uh, and at that point, the legality of the scheme will be determined. The other piece of advice I would give, which the government might not want, would be not to overreact to this by threatening to walk away from the ECHR uh, or to do anything radical in terms of our participation in the Convention or the Council of Europe, that, it seems to me, apart from just being bonkers, would be 
a, a complete overreaction to one judgment, one interim judgment uh, of the European Court in one case, however controversial, which is yet to run its course. That's exactly the point I wanted to ask you about, of, of what it would mean for the UK to quit the um, European Convention on, Hu- on Human Rights, the, uh, to leave dealing with the, the, the Court on Human Rights. And we should say that these are nothing to do with the EU, are they? It's nothing to do with the EU, completely different organisation, the Council of Europe, and a completely different court, the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, completely different from the European Court of Justice in Luxembourg. So what, what would it mean if, if, we, if we quit it? Well, this would, I don't think it will happen, frankly. Uh, there's a lot of posturing going on, as there often is in these controversial cases. Uh, it would be a massive, controversial, international, political, uh, constitutional, diplomatic decision to leave the Council of Europe, uh, um, of which we have been uh, absolutely committed members right from the beginning. Um, and we would, I think, be the only country apart from Russia and Belarus uh, in the European, uh, in Europe, not to be a member. Uh, this would be a very extraordinary thing to do. It would also cause massive constitutional ructions domestically because our membership of the uh, Council of Europe and our participation in the ECHR is baked into so much of our constitutional arrangements, including uh, the Good Friday Agreement, uh, notably, but also all the devolution settlements. Uh, and it's also a condition of our participation in the Brexit deal, the trade and cooperation agreement with the EU. So the idea that we would, on the basis of one difficult, controversial case, take a decision of that magnitude uh, seems, I mean, it's completely implausible. And I think people should calm down about it. I, I just can't bear these lawyers who who sit on the fence the whole time, Bronwyn. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> um, Jess, the... A lot of bishops, all members of the House of Lords, spoke mm. out against this policy, and then they uh, were countered by a government source, um, so to speak, saying it was time to get them out of the, the upper house. You're also working on our, some of our constitution work. Is it possible to remove the bishops? Certainly, if the government wanted to pursue House of Lords reform, then that is something that they could do if they could get that through Parliament. And I think there are lots of reasons why in a modern democracy you might not think that it's appropriate to have religious representation in the legislature. But actually, removing bishops from the House of Lords isn't going to stop the church from commenting and be able to comment publicly on government policy. So I don't know whether actually it would have made a huge amount of difference in this case. And I think this is actually part of this wider trend where if the government threatening constitutional reform in response to uh, barriers to the implementation of certain policies. So we've seen it with the courts, we've seen it with the House of Lords um, more widely in some other institutions like the Electoral Commission or the BBC. So a key part of our work going forward is thinking about um, which parts of the constitution do need improving and reform and taking this reflective and considered view of the constitution, thinking about the core functions of the constitution and the way that we want it to work, not this kind of reactive response to constitutional policy, which I think is part of the government's response at the moment. So um, I think there is a need to think about how proposed constitutional reforms all fit together and fit in the system rather than just react to the current policy issue now. Get the, get these ones out. And, and that's before coming on to Prince Charles. Obviously, as you said, a lot of people are very free to <laughs> comment. Um, Jonathan, just one final thing on this. We've got a paper coming out this week on the role of law officers in government. I believe by Robert Buckland, former 
Justice Secretary. How do they fit in? Well, uh, the law officers, that's the Attorney General and the Solicitor General and the Advocate General for Scotland, are the government's most senior legal advisors. Um, much of what they do is behind the scenes, and there is a, a rule, a convention in the Ministerial Code that you, you don't get told when the law officers have advised, let alone what they have advised. Um, but, the, I mean, the truth is, on some of these very big issues, including uh, both the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill and Rwanda deportations, uh, Rwanda removals, it's safe to assume, to put it no higher, that the law officers will have advised. Uh, and actually, um, Suella Braverman, the Attorney General, has been very visible and very vocal, much more than law officers historically have been, in getting out and defending government decisions, not just in Parliament, but in the media. So uh, I think it's safe to assume that she will have been instrumental in advising on both of those things. Uh, uh, And that is sort of what one would expect. Um, What it does mean is that she has signed off on uh, a policy of, as I would say, breaking international law when it comes to the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, And of course, the truth is that she was prepared to do that in the Internal Market Bill back in 2020, uh, when there was no attempt, actually, to justify it by reference to international law. The government accepted that it was breaking the law. Uh, uh, So um, she would have been very instrumental in that issue again this time round, I've no doubt. Well, thank you for explaining all that for us. Okay, finally, let's end with looking ahead to the planned rail strike. We're joined now by Matthew Gill, our senior fellow who's been keeping an eye on it. Hi, Matthew. Hi, Bronwyn. Matthew, summer of discontent. Why? Well, um, the uh, the RMT union um, on, on the rails has announced strikes next week, um, which will be for three full days on Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday. Uh, and they've done that um, with a very strong mandate from their, from their members, um, nearly 90% of, of people voting. Uh, in favour of strike action on, on quite a high turnout. Um, so, um, and that's happening in the context of uh, the rail industry having uh, lost quite a lot of money and required quite a lot of subsidy over the last couple of years. Um, and um, with rising inflation causing pressure on wages across the economy. Um, so government's been asking the rail industry to handle this, um, but not been not very successfully. The rail industry hasn't been able to. Yeah. And it's been making the point, of course, that it bailed out the um, uh, the industry during coronavirus when traffic, obviously um, passenger traffic, um, slumped to very, very low levels. Um, exactly. But this, this isn't what it wants. Now, is this the government's problem to solve? This is a privatised industry, sort of. Well, um, by sort of, I mean an enormous uh, number of very small decisions still keep ending up on um, ministers' desks, but it is, in theory, a privatised industry. Indeed. And I think um, there's a real question there for for whether privatisation really does take decision-making away from government in situations where the industry is a a natural monopoly and there isn't real consumer choice about um, who to travel with if you're trying to go from, um, you know, 
one city to another. There's only there's only one provider, and they're only traveling on one set of rails. Um, and so, um, government has has obviously tried to to privatize a particular way. And one of the things for the future, with the advent of Great British Railways and the restructure of the railways, that I think government will have half an eye on is whether that structural change can alter the balance of power. Um, in, in the industry and make it easier to delegate to privatised firms. But in a natural monopoly, that is hard. And I think it's also coming back to uh, government, particularly because of the wider context. Um, uh, the strikes in rail are, are seeking to maintain uh, real-term wages, um, but at a time of um, high inflation in the context of most other sectors of the economy, notably the public sector, doing very significantly worse than that. And so um, government is trying to um, manage this situation in the context of trying to manage inflationary pressures across um, the economy. Alex, what do you make of this this point about whether it's government's responsibility? It is a crucial industry. That's why they supported it. Um, but, you, you know, what, what are their options? Yeah, I think well, Matthew's put it really well. I don't have lots to uh, add to that, but it will, you know, it sort of inevitably lands on the government's desk. You know, you can, you can say, these are private companies. These are um, uh, uh, these are you know take take your take your complaints to the um, uh, the rail companies. Um, but in the end, it's ministers who have a huge voice in making all those micro decisions, as you and Matthew were just talking about, setting the fare um, uh, levels each year. So I think it's very hard for them to avoid political accountability for that, which of course then gets into a, a sort of ever tighter. Uh, circle of um, you know, ministers feeling accountable for those decisions, therefore intervening even more. You know, it takes a very brave minister to uh, genuinely be hands off on these things when when the when the politics and uh, uh, and the situation gets gets hot like this. Mm. Jonathan, um, do the government lawyers get dragged in? I'm thinking also the government's musing over whether to try to make it um, illegal not to keep essential services running. Uh- Yes, well, um, there's that issue, and that would, of course, require legislation. So um, no doubt government lawyers will have been asked to advise on the options to legislation, and that would be a big thing. Uh, and in any event, I mean, for all the reasons that um, you've heard, um, whenever you have these issues that are nominally the responsibility of uh, either a private uh, operator or an independent, quote, regulator, nonetheless government gets brought in because ministers ultimately are accountable and so on. And uh, lawyers will be involved in advising around the parameters of the government's powers as opposed to a regulator's powers as opposed to the role of the private operator. So you've got that kind of nexus of legal responsibility and I'm sure lawyers will have been advising on that. I mean, there are a couple of things actually that government might do. There's the minimum service levels um, uh, option that they're pursuing. They're also looking at whether they can bring in agency workers um, to uh, to cover some of these um, areas more readily than, than at present. And that would be a change that might affect all sectors uh, and not just rail, because obviously in the short term, they're in a, they're in a zero-sum game with the unions, which is not where they want to be. Um, at an industry level, they can cut services, increase fares, again, not a tra- trade-offs they, they really want to make. So they're looking for ways out of this this box, but um, none of them are attractive unless you can really solve the much wider problem of um, real-terms wages across the economy being in decline. And what about Scotland? Scotland's railway is now under public ownership, having been nationalised, and from April the 1st, it's going to be run by a new arms-length Scottish government company. Are they going to go their own way on it? 
Indeed. Well, that I think remains to be to be seen. Um, I think historic experience suggests that, particularly if it's one company running the the railway in Scotland, um, it seems very difficult to imagine that that is going to resolve this problem and get it off the government's uh, plate. Um, it still feels like it, it's going to be a very monopolistic situation in which, when it gets really difficult, it's going to come back to to the government to solve. Mm. Jess, Labour's found this a bit tricky, hasn't it? Yes, absolutely. I think the government has been keen to try and push Labour on this issue to try and um, get them to say whether they support the strikes or not. And we've seen um, them try to navigate that. But that is one of the angles that the government is is pushing here. Um, and I think when we see the full extent of disruption next week, I think we'll see more on that ahead of this by-election we're expecting. Yes, we have West treating. Recently speaking on an IFG stage, um, trying to say both things. Uh, that he would support the strike, but he wouldn't, um, but didn't want it to happen. And um, yeah, an amazing variety of comments from Labour. So as you said, more to come on that. Alex, just finally, do ministers fear or sometimes relish dealing with a strike? Oh, I suppose it depends on the uh, the character of the minister and uh, whether they're a combative or not. I suspect whether, whether they think they're going to win. I guess. Well, exactly. So they're 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 normally more up for the fight than the um, the civil servants. So you know, uh, politics is about argument and debate and uh, uh, conflict at at times. So uh, you know, so yes, ministers will see the advantage of it. Partly, um, you know, putting themselves uh, on the side of consumers and passengers. Uh, partly, um, uh, in exploiting some of the labour difficulties, as you and Jess. We're just um, talking about, but in the end, uh, you know, grumpy people, grumpy passengers will tend to blame the government for these things. So uh, it's it's not something that is a sort of clear win for them. And ultimately, this will rebound on uh, ministers and the government. I mean, I'm struck by you know, this is a this is a uh, or members of this government and the Conservative Party often look back to the 1980s and the sort of uh, Golden Thatcher era as they would see it. Uh, you know, Margaret Thatcher uh, settled uh, industrial action uh, time after time before she uh, went for the uh, went for the big one in the miners' strike in the um, uh, mid-1980s. And that was because she had done the preparation and she uh, felt confident that she was able to win. Um, so uh, these, you know, the, the, the his, history gets a little bit compressed. And I think there are, you know, there are real risks, uh, as previous Conservative governments have found and Labour governments, um, as well as opportunities. Mm. Well, thank you for that. An important point about Margaret Thatcher. Often forgotten. But on that note, we're going to have to wrap up this episode of Inside Briefing. So my great thanks to Jess Sargent, Alex Thomas, Matthew Gill, and Jonathan Jones. Brilliant that you could all be here this week. Thank you all for listening at home. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, all major platforms. Please do leave us a review. Don't forget to visit our website at instituteforgovernment.org.uk for all our latest analysis of Lord Geit's resignation, the Northern Ireland Protocol, and an awful lot more. Good luck with next week's train strike. Rest assured that Inside Briefing will be running smoothly, on track, on time, and indeed, within the legal tram lines. See you next time. Bye.